Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. This week, we explore the world of cyber security. What is your mobile phone telling hackers about you without you even realising? How companies are compromising competitors' websites to boost their own sales? And the security breaches that mean the devices we plug into the internet are aiding criminals. I found a petrol station. This petrol station has a feed over the chip and pin terminals, which you use when you make payments. And it's high enough resolution that I could see all of the credit card numbers and the pin numbers being typed in. And that was streamed to the internet with no username and password. Scary stuff. Plus, in the news, an update on Ebola. And after 100 years, has DNA technology revealed the identity of the notorious London murderer Jack the Ripper? Stay tuned to find out. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. First up this week, with over 3,000 victims so far, the Ebola crisis gripping parts of West Africa is 10 times larger than previous outbreaks since the disease first surfaced 40 years ago. Scientists also speculated this week that up to 20,000 people might be affected before the outbreak peaks. So why is this happening? According to a new study, it's because the human population, communications including roads and people's travel patterns in the affected countries have changed dramatically in recent years. And this is what's driving the spread. Even more worrying is that the new study also suggests that in total 22 African countries could be at risk from similar Ebola outbreaks. From the University of Oxford, lead researcher David Piggott. Given the recent outbreak in in Guinea, we've been looking at how Ebola is actually spread around the African area. So when you consider Ebola, it's important to recognise that there are two distinct processes going on. Firstly, there's what we call the zoonotic phase, where there's cycling of Ebola viruses between different animals. And we currently think that bat species are the main reservoir of this, but also Uh, Great apes such as gorillas and chimpanzees can also be infected. Now, occasionally, humans interact with this animal population, normally through bushmeat hunting or butchering of animal carcasses. And then it transitions from animals to humans, and then there's subsequent human-to-human transmission going on. So in the outbreak in Guinea at the minute, um, genetic evidence has shown that there's only actually been one transmission event from animals to humans and that all subsequent cases are actually human to human interactions so burial practices or caring after sick relatives for instance or within the hospital setting itself. What can you tell us about Ebola's history because this is not a new infection it's been knocking around and periodically surfacing for a number of years hasn't it? Yeah so it's got about a 45 year history 
1976, there was a, a series of unexplained symptoms that had never really been recognised before that occurred simultaneously in what was then called Zaire, so Northern Democratic Republic of Congo, and also in the southern borders of Sudan. And since then, we've seen small numbers of cases, no more than 400 to 500 individuals involved in an outbreak, and spreading no further than one or two imported cases elsewhere in the world. So with the Guinea outbreak, what we've actually seen is something that seems completely different to the previous history of Ebola. We've had more individuals infected than all other outbreaks of Ebola combined, and we've actually seen it spread to more countries than we ever have before. So it's moved from Guinea to Liberia, Sierra Leone, and then through air travel to Nigeria and Senegal recently. So would you say then that the sort of dynamics, the way in which the disease is behaving in this outbreak are clearly different than patterns you've seen in previous years? So in the work that we've been doing, we've been looking at how the connectivity of these populations has changed dramatically over the last 45 years. The population size themselves has nearly tripled. And actually, we only have international air connectivity data for the last five years or so. But within that period of time, some countries have actually increased their outbound flights by three or four times. So it's a pretty rapid increase. And why do you think that those things changing could increase the likelihood that Ebola will surface and alter the way in which the disease behaves in communities like it has? All these human changes are actually going to be very important in how we see human-to-human -human transmission of the disease. So increasing population size, increasing population density is going to mean that if individuals are infected, they're more likely to come across others to infect them. So how did you go about doing this study? How did you get the data that's enabled you to, to begin to look at how the disease might change or how there are various factors that could influence the dynamics of this infection? So we looked at the last 45 years or so of published articles on Ebola virus, both within humans and animals. And basically, it was a, a bit of detective work identifying human outbreaks and then backtracking it all the way to see who was the first person that got infected and, if possible, how they became infected. And what implications are there on the basis of what you have found in your analysis for both preventing future episodes and outbreaks of Ebola, but also perhaps managing better the current crisis we've got? Yeah, so there's, there's two different aspects to that. I think the, one of the most important things that our paper shows is that the range of different countries that are at risk of Ebola is actually a lot greater than we first thought. So we predict that there's 22 countries in Central and Western Africa, that there's the environmental possibility that animal-to-human transmission can occur. Seven of those countries have actually seen that transmission occur, but there are 15 countries that haven't actually seen Ebola in those areas. So these would be great places to start surveying bat populations or other mammals that could be reservoirs of Ebola, i.e. animals that are infected with Ebola but don't show signs of infection, so they don't die necessarily. Uh, to get a better understanding of how the disease is cycling within animal populations, and that's a very important process to understand because then it allows us to assess the risk of does hunting in this area actually mean that the transmission from animal to human uh, could occur.
Now, given that you've identified that the potential for Ebola outbreaks is much bigger than the present pattern of activity, what sorts of strategies would you urge, apart from obviously monitoring, to try to prevent this happening in future or to get a handle on where it might happen and and mobilise some sort of resource to stop it? So I think it would be a very tall order to try and say, oh, the next area where Ebola is going to transition from animals to humans is going to be. But one thing that we could do is look to see how these populations are connected. So there are some people that use, for instance, mobile phone data to see how people move within a country. So if we can identify areas that are very well connected, we could perhaps prioritise those transport nodes, as it were, to prevent further spread of any infection should it actually occur. Oxford's David Piggott on a new study which has just been published in the journal eLife on the Ebola crisis in Africa. Now, it's remarkably common for elderly people who were previously healthy to die soon after their spouse. We usually say they've perhaps died of a broken heart. But why? And could that actually be a scientific reason? Ginny Smith caught up with Dr Anna Phillips from the University of Birmingham, who has evidence that it might be down to the immune system not working so well at times of stress. The study that uh, has just come out is looking at the stress of bereavement, which is a chronic stress because it's enduring, and we wanted to see whether it could have a negative effect on particular parts of the immune system that are very key for fighting off diseases like pneumonia. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence. People are always saying how they had a relative who, who died suddenly and then in a very short time afterwards the spouse of that person also died and they had been previously healthy. And we're interested in finding out why that might be. Are they dying of a broken heart or is something going on in the immune system? Is the stress of bereavement accelerating their own mortality? So how did you go about studying that? We had some great collaborators at St Mary's Hospice who gave out our information to the friends and family who had lost people who had been staying in the hospice. And these individuals were able to decide if they wanted to take part in our study. And if they did we would give them a questionnaire and also take a blood sample so that we could look at um, immune function. And what were you looking for in that blood sample? We were particularly interested in a cell called the neutrophil. So it's an immune system cell. Uh, There's a lot of them, and they're very important if you're fighting off pneumonia. So they're very important for older people because pneumonia is a big killer of older people. And what the neutrophil does is it engulfs bacteria or eats them and then it produces a lot of chemicals such as reactive oxygen species that actually eradicate the bacteria. So we particularly wanted to look at this cell because this is the one that if it's not working, an older person is going to be susceptible to infection and death from pneumonia. And what did you find? Was there a difference in these cells for the people who'd been bereaved? When we compared bereaved older adults to a control group, so these were people who were non-bereaved, relatively healthy older people, we found that the bereaved people had poorer neutrophil function. So while their neutrophils were still able to engulf bacteria, they just couldn't kill it effectively. They weren't producing as much of these reactive oxygen species. And the interesting thing was that we compared this to a younger group, and although the younger bereaved group also had high levels of stress, having suffered bereavement and had high anxiety and depression, their immune cell function was fine. Their neutrophils were working the same level as the young control group. So it was the older bereaved people that were susceptible to poor neutrophil function. So what do we think's going on here? Why is it having more of an impact in the older people than in the younger people? 
as you age, your, your immune system ages as well, and it's what we call immunosenescence. And there are changes to, to various parts of the system and also to the function and numbers of different immune cells. So by the time you're 65, your immune system isn't working as effectively. That's why we see things like poorer responses to vaccination in older people and higher levels of infections. When you add a chronic stressor on top of that, something like bereavement, that's when we expect to see that older people will be even more vulnerable because their immune system's already not working as efficiently as it was when they were younger. And do we know what it is in the body that's controlling this change in the immune system after a stressor? We think that one of the key um, mechanisms that might be having this impact are stress hormones. So, for example, the stress hormone cortisol, which can be a good thing because it's anti-inflammatory, but also can be a bad thing because it can suppress the function of some parts of the immune system. When you have a chronic stressor, you have more cortisol generally in circulation, but you also have a drop in the opposite hormone, which is dehydroepiandrosterone, or DHEA. Now, this also decreases with age. So by the time that you're over 65, you don't have the same levels that you had when you were younger. And the interesting thing is the ratio between the stress hormone cortisol and the other one, DHEA, because DHEA is immunoenhancing, whereas cortisol can suppress immunity. And what we found is that the bereaved people in our study, the bereaved older adults, had a higher ratio of cortisol to DHEA. Is that having an impact on them? Are they more likely to fall sick because of that? Certainly, if you've got a high cortisol to DHEA ratio, that's been related in in other older groups to having an increased risk of infection and also mortality from infection. So we believe that the changes we're seeing here will have real knock-on effects. If you're not able to combat pneumonia, for example, then yes, that's going to have a big impact on your health. So now we know this, what can we do to help people who are vulnerable to these kind of effects? We could try and correct the hormone balance, which hasn't been done yet, but we are considering looking into whether a supplement, such as trying to get people's DHEA levels back up to where they were just for a short time, might actually help them. But there are lots of simple ways as well. So, for example, one of the ways that you can boost your immune function and boost your DHA levels is by exercising, even if it's just moderate physical activity and also social support. It's really important at times of stress like bereavement to have a social network that you mobilise. Don't be socially isolated because you'll be at more risk. Birmingham scientist Anna Phillips speaking with Ginny Smith about the work she published this week in the journal Immunity and Ageing. In the late 1800s, a killer stalked the streets of London. He was dubbed Jack the Ripper, but his real identity has been a source of speculation ever since. Well, now an author and a scientist working together have used genetic techniques to apparently confirm his identity. Their work builds on suspicions that the Ripper might have been a Jewish immigrant called Aaron Kosminski, who'd fled persecution in Poland with his family to Mile End in London in 1881. But no one would testify against him. And to date, no one has ever been condemned or convicted for the gruesome murders of at least five East End women. But... Writer and Ripper enthusiast Russell Edwards tracked down at an auction in Suffolk a blood-stained shawl that was said to have belonged to one of the victims, a woman called Catherine Eddowes. Russell then hunted down Liverpool-based John Moores University scientist Yari Luhanenen, who specialises in recovering DNA from old artefacts. He was able to extract one of the forms of human DNA present in our cells called mitochondrial DNA from stains on the shawl, which included blood from the victim and semen stains left by the Ripper, and he then matched those DNA profiles to living descendants of both parties, strongly suggesting that Aaron Kosminski was the Ripper. I spoke to Yari Luhanenen to hear how he did it. 
the DNA testing started slowly because we had to avoid the surface contamination. So material which was on the surface, like someone touching the shawl and, uh, you know, all kinds of debris, like even um, dandruff and, and so on. So it took some time, but in the end, we managed to extract DNA sample from these stains. So in any object or surface, um, uh, the DNA, DNA actually falls apart with age. So in order to see the big picture, we need to put these bits back together, like a jigsaw puzzle. That enables us to read the complete sequence. After this, uh, we could then compare this to the descendants' DNA and verify that the object belonged to the, one of the murder victims. Uh, in the beginning, we didn't have the descendants, so we had to uh, track this person down. And we thought it would be nearly impossible, uh, but um, Russell had seen her in a BBC program by accident. I think it was Find My Past. So you get DNA from this surviving descendant of this mm -hmm. person who was killed by Jack the Ripper, allegedly, mm -hmm. and you get her DNA profile and then compare it what to what comes off the shawl. Yeah, that's it. And what do you find? It was a perfect match as long as we could see. So this is mitochondrial DNA. Similar to this is, the, for example, the Richard III case where they used same way mitochondrial DNA. So that give, gave in, us enough sort of um, confidence that we could continue this work because it looked like that indeed it belonged to the uh, murder victim. Indeed. I mean, it, it proves that this shawl must have been in contact both with the victim but also potentially in contact with the person who did the crime. Yeah, and that was the hard part. And I thought that we are we are done here until I found some stains which looked like a sperm or semen stain. I couldn't understand why these are here as well. And I told this to Russell and his eyes lit and he said, this is exactly what has been reported uh, about Jack. This is his uh, way of operating and, and this is a great find. Uh, so what you're saying is there was a sexual element to the crimes he committed exactly, and that this, yeah. was, this was some evidence of that left behind. Exactly, yeah. Now, at this point, of course, we don't have any material from, from these stains, so we started hunting that, and uh, and I'm not an expert on that, so I asked my friend at the uh, University of Leeds, Dr David Miller, to have a look. He didn't find the sperm heads, but found the epithelial cells which are associated with the sperm head, just a very few of them, and they were in bad condition. Did that yield DNA, nonetheless, despite the poor condition? Did you get DNA from that semen stain? Uh, yeah. So uh, now you're in a position where you've got a shawl which has the genetic markings associated with a person who is a known victim of Jack the Ripper. Yeah. You also now have bodily fluid remnants which are consistent with this guy's modus operandi, how he was alleged to have killed his victims. Yeah. Uh, and you can get DNA from it. So that still leaves a, an, an unfinished part of the puzzle, which is that you've just got a DNA profile from a stain. How do yeah. you know that this stain comes from the Ripper himself? Well, uh, again, this was one of these things that I said that we have to find the uh, descendant. And uh, I thought that even if we find this person, it would be impossible to sort of get a permission to use her DNA. Russell then uh, tracked this person down with the help of uh, genealogists and uh, he managed to get this person to cooperate. So what we used was mitochondrial DNA and uh, we also got the genomic DNA from the um, cells which were associated with the sperm heads and managed to get uh, the hair and eye colour. So you, in other words, you get a genetic match with mm. the surviving descendant of Jack yeah. the Ripper 
how much certainty do you have that this is what you think it is? So this work is based on uh, mitochondrial DNA in, in both uh, matching the victim and matching the uh, suspect. So this is not uh, valid in, in modern court. So uh, there's some bit of uncertainty in that sense, about the same level as with the Richard III case, uh, where they used also mitochondrial DNA. What we have is strongly suggesting uh, that uh, this is the case. And, and I think Russell uh, is using my DNA work and his, all, his own uh, sort of uh, circumstantial evidence to say very firmly that this is 100% and conclusively Aaron Kosminski. But my DNA work actually just gives strong suggestion at this point and it needs to be verified. John Moore's university scientist, Yuri Luhalinen, who worked with author Russell Edwards on naming Jack the Ripper, which is also the title they've chosen in publishing their book, To Tell the Story. Our coffee now and the chemistry behind your morning fix. Scientists have sequenced the genetic code of the coffee plant to help them work out why really great coffee tastes and smells the way it does. Greer Jackson went to meet coffee connoisseur Liz Booker from Starbucks and botanist Alex Munro from the Natural History Museum. There are about 68 to 70 species of coffee, of which probably eight have been used for producing a beverage. Most of the current coffee market would be Robusta, which is one of the species, and Arabica, which is the one that probably most people are familiar with. So what sort of benefit does genome sequencing have? It provides us with a whole suite of tools for us to tease apart how the plant generates the chemicals which are represented by that flavour. And then you can start looking at ways of identifying the genes you you think are responsible for flavour. And then you can go and look for those genes in lots of different individual plants growing all over the world. And one thing they looked at in particular that I thought was interesting is how caffeine had evolved in plants. Why are all these different varieties evolving to have caffeine in their leaves, in their, in their fruit? It's basically assumed that that chemical is produced to defend the plant from probably insects. We're sitting in Starbucks and with me is Liz Booker. Liz, you're the chief coffee taster for Starbucks. What makes the perfect cup of coffee? I mean, we've talked a bit about how there's lots of different interesting flavours. Is it all down to the genes or is there more to it than that? There's much more to it than that. So um, you want to start off with a really great coffee plant and um, a really great seed, which is the coffee bean. But then there's a huge amount of care and attention that you need to pay to the plant as a farmer to be able to develop a tree that's going to bring you really fantastic beans. And then from growing really brilliant beans, you need to be able to pick them exactly at the most perfect time. And then you want to be able to process those coffee beans in the best way to bring out the flavour attributes of that coffee. Can we, um, can we try some? Absolutely. So what I've brought for you here is a cupping. And this is the professional way that we taste coffee at Starbucks when we're deciding whether or not we're going to purchase it. The first thing that we're going to be looking for is the aroma. And there are about a thousand different kinds of aromas coming out of Arabica coffee. So we've each got one spoon, Alex, Liz and I. First of all, we're going to break the crust. So we've got hot water and ground coffee in these little glasses. And there's a thick crust, the crust of coffee forms at the top. With this, we're actually going to break the crust and smell all the aromas in the coffee. So the first one that we're going to smell is the Zambia Terranova coffee. It smells quite earthy to me. It's my initial instinct. Okay. What do you think, Alex? Uh, it smells very warm and aromatic. It's not like coffee. 
it smells like coffee. What can you smell? It smells like coffee. And for me, I'm getting a little bit of nectarine and peach, and then a little bit of vanilla as well. It's also got some really soft spiciness, a little bit um, similar to nutmeg for me. If you want to grab a spoon, I'm going to show you how we taste the coffee professionally. So you take a spoonful of coffee. The next thing that you have to do is slurp the coffee. Um, and the reason that we slurp coffee is we, is we want to get all the coffee up into our sense of smell. It's a noise that your mum shouldn't be proud of you making. It's a very fierce um, slurp. Okay, so this one is the Zambia one. It's a little bit like whistling backwards. So if you can whistle and then think about reversing it, then that's how you get a really good slurp. You should be able to pick up some of those really beautiful, bright, juicy notes. Given that there's so much at play here when you're tasting coffee, do we really need another variety? I think definitely um, being able to work out how to get plants that are stronger, being able to have plants that are going to be more resistant to disease will ensure that farmers are able to produce really high-quality crops and then develop really gorgeous flavours that are within them. So I think that would be fantastic for the farmers. That's Liz Booker and Alex Munro slurping along with Greer Jackson. Cat. Do you know what that is? <laughs> what is that? A cup of tea? P- PG tips. <laughs> uh, did you get the delicate notes in there? <laughs> Only the delicate noise of your slurping, Chris. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and with Katani. And you can get in touch with us via chris at thenakedscientist.com or look us up on Twitter. It's at Naked Scientists. And on to our main topic for this week now, cyber security. Our lives are increasingly moving online. Tax, pensions and benefit claims are being handled over the internet. We pay bills, we buy things, we do banking. And Royal Mail is rapidly being replaced by e-mail. Now, these communications often contain sensitive personal data. But how safe is it? Well, the answer is that it's not. And with the help of experts from around the world who've been contributing to the 44Con Cybersecurity Conference, which has been taking place in London this week, we reveal some of the threats that you need to watch out for, including what your mobile phone gives away without you knowing, especially when you go abroad, and what might be lurking inside that innocent document someone sends you over email. But first, security should start at home. Unfortunately, though, it turns out that many of us are blissfully unaware that we're leaving ourselves very exposed. James Lyon is the global head of security research at Sophos, and he set up a project called World of Warbiking to show just how vulnerable we are. The World of Warbiking was a bit of a mad science project that we came up with to go and measure just how well we in society in general are doing at securing things like our wireless networks that we're all increasingly depending on for business and, of course, most of the time at home. So we took a bike, fitted it with some special wireless scanning equipment, some mini computers and some batteries and solar panels, very Heath Robinson, and cycled around five major cities around the world, building a map of of the wireless networks that we all use. And Really, to to cut to the spoilers, I can tell you that across each of those cities, between four and nine and a half percent of the population of those cities were using wireless security standards that have been known, violated and broken in less than 60 seconds by the hackers uh, since uh, 2004. Shocking. So you were basically riding around on a bike and the bike is rigged up with a system that will probe without hacking into them, just probe and ask the simple question, 
what wireless networks are here and what security protocols are they running? And, and you're therefore assuming, because we know how vulnerable various networks are, that, that those people have got no other security. Uh, precisely. And, and with a small number of, of willing victims that signed off, uh, we actually did demonstrate uh, the ability to break those networks in, in less than 60 seconds and show them their own passwords. Uh, and what was very amusing was, of course, most people didn't know their own password and had to go and look at the sticker they'd put on the fridge, which is an entirely different security issue. Which cities did you look at? So we did London, San Francisco, uh, Sydney in Australia, Hanoi. Cycling in Hanoi was very interesting. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and, and wrapped it all up with Las Vegas, which was a particularly interesting area, I, I must admit. We had a little extra dimension to this experiment. Uh, as we were cycling around, we had our very own wireless network, which we offered to members of the public. And if, if you connected to our network, which was named either free public Wi-Fi, free internet, or do not connect, that was my personal favourite, you would be offered internet access, you'd be given a warning, and then we logged what people got up to and how secure they were. I I can't even go into the details of what some people were browsing in Las Vegas, but suffice to say, at an overall level across all the different cities, less than 1.2% of all the people that connected to our wireless network, thousands and thousands of people were appropriately securing themselves to protect themselves against us deploying malicious code, intercepting their emails, instant message chats or alike. We're so you, talking... you've got people connecting to a network called Do Not Connect. And then what are they doing? Online banking or something? Uh, actually, yeah, the number one activity was, was online banking. I mean, what could possibly go wrong uh, connecting to, to one of these networks? I'm sure that's fine. <laughs> um, and 99% of them are vulnerable. The people who do that are not using any kind of security measure that means that, that were you interrupting those transmissions and siphoning off the data on the way to the bank and they wouldn't know about it, they wouldn't be able to stop you. Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. And, and what's really depressing is... The technology to stop this and the simple behaviours to prevent these kinds of attacks has been widespread and well known to the security community for many, many years. Most people simply aren't doing it. The other thing which I think perhaps we should dwell on is going back to your fact that maybe 10% of networks, whether they're in businesses or in public or, or Wi-Fi hotspots and things, less than 10% of them are using robust and resilient security. Surely a bigger question is what is behind those networks? What's plugged into them? Because increasingly, lots of devices now are on the internet. We've got this phenomenon of the internet of things coming along. And this means potentially if someone can compromise your home network, they're actually compromising everything you've got in your house. You're absolutely right. And it it's a really interesting trend that has seriously taken us all by surprise. Uh, just yesterday, I bought a slow cooker for my kitchen, which comes with wireless built in by default and connects to a smartphone app, which enables me to turn it on from the other side of the world. Um, and a little bit of reverse engineering, and I've already found that it uses a static password, uh, which means that if I can find anyone else's slow cooker, I can control that as well. Uh, so I might be ruining a few, a few beef stews shortly. Uh, <laughs> but, but that's, of course, just one of the many types of devices. Um, baby monitors, CCTV cameras. I mean, I, I've even found wireless plant monitors that will water your plants for you whilst you're on holiday. I mean, we're really extending the reach of digital technology into the physical world and placing it all around us, which opens up a lot of possibilities for attackers. I mean, going back to the CCTV point, if 
people have got a CCTV at home ostensibly to make their house more secure, and that's behind an insecure network interface, and someone like you knows how to find those cameras, then you could potentially actually turn it round and say, well, I now know when the people aren't at home because I can use their own camera to find out when their home is empty and then I can go and rob it. There's a, there's a deep-rooted irony there, isn't there? <laughs> um, and the, these devices are, are shockingly poor. I acquired 12 CCTV cameras from Amazon, the, the kind that you would put in your home or a small business, and I found serious flaws that would enable anyone with a bit of skill to get into every single one of them. And uh, I actually did a bit of searching online, uh, as much as we could within the confines of, of law and ethics, unlike the cyber criminals. Uh, I, I found a petrol station. Um, uh, this, this petrol station has a feed over the chip and pin terminals, which you use when you make payments. And it's high enough resolution that I could see all of the credit card numbers and the pin numbers being typed in. And that was streamed to the internet with no username and password. Good grief. Have you told them? Yeah, I've actually managed to locate, which I think is the right petrol station, uh, and I've sent them a note. The feed is still there, um, along with many others. I found an Italian clothing store. Uh, that's wonderfully creepy as it has infrared in the changing rooms, which I, I've emailed them and said I thought that was horribly inappropriate, even if it was a secure system. An astonishing number. Now, what can be done? Because your average person who isn't computer savvy, they use certain platforms that are very, very user-friendly for a reason, because they don't want to have to become an uber geek on a computer to do to overcome this sort of thing. What can they do? What can the average person do to make themselves safer? I've got a very simple ask. There, there are a number of very simple best practice items. Things like getting yourself good passwords, not using the same password on every site and service, keeping these devices up to date, check your home wireless network and make sure you're using the latest security standard. I'm going to use a bit of jargon here, but it'll be helpful so you know what to Google to get some tips. Look up WPA2. And if you're really, really unsure, ask an expert. Um, if, you, if you can do those simple things, you know, we'll make sure us uber geeks, along with lawyers, regulators and alike, that uh, these Internet of Things devices get improved. James Lyon from Sophos. Now, in a moment, we'll find out about the documents that hijack your computer when you read them. But first, sticking with mobile communications, what could your mobile phone be telling criminals about you? We're joined now by Daniel Cuthbert. He's from UK and South African security company SensePost. Hi, thanks very much for joining us. Good evening. Thank you. Now, I've just come back from two weeks off in the US, touring around, talking to some scientists, and I have pretty much logged on to every free Wi-Fi network that's going. I'm starting to maybe get the feeling from the look on your face that that was not such a smart thing to do so what information uh, could hackers get from my mobile phone and, and how could they do this by me uh, using things like like free wi-fi so i guess the the short answer is a lot um, the way that we use our mobile devices today has changed it's we're no longer using a laptop or a pc to do online banking online purchases you know browsing our social media we're using these mobile devices and unfortunately with that we're also using wi-fi you know as James just alluded to, you know, Wi-Fi is pretty much everywhere these days, from the Internet of Things to petrol stations, etc. And the promise of free Wi-Fi, especially when you go abroad, you know, with roaming charges, what they are. It's ridiculous, frankly. It's, it's almost criminal. Um, 
you know, it's, it's quite nice to use. You know, you can stop into your local Starbucks or your McDonald's or if you see something that says free internet, well, why not? I can just quickly jump online, check my PayPal balance, etc. The problem is, one, you have no idea who controls the information that's passing between your phone, the access point, and to the rest of the internet. And there's no way of you really telling. And two, the information going out there could be your credentials, your Gmail account, your banking details, and anything else that your phone sends out. Now, the problem is your mobile phones are quite chatty. You know, so when you connect to the internet, all your applications, all your social media apps, all screaming out to everybody going, hey, I'm here, give me some updates. And if there's some evil person sitting in between, there's a very good chance that they're getting that information too. So now I'm kind of scared. So how how could someone be doing that? How could they be intercepting? So, you know, for example, I was in uh, I was in a Starbucks in Manhattan. So how could someone and I logged into, you know, said Starbucks Wi-Fi. How would someone be intercepting what I was doing there? Are you sure it was Starbucks Wi-Fi? It said it was Starbucks Wi-Fi, and I got, like, the Starbucks thing came up. We're we're very trusting when it comes to the Internet. Um, It's one of the mediums that attackers exploit, that, you know, just because it says it's Starbucks, well, it must be. Traveling here on the Tube, you know, I passed a number of access points pretending to be Vodafone Wi-Fi. I have no idea it's controlled by Vodafone but it says it's Vodafone. So what attackers can do is they can pretend to be these networks because you're trusting. And there's a very good chance that you've connected to these networks before. So it's very easy to do what's called a a jargon thing, rogue access point, where I pretend to be another network and give you internet access. And I guess like a lot of phones now, they'll automatically connect to to something if they think they've seen it before. Yes, it's called your uh, preferred network list. So it's it's a usability issue. Um, You don't want to have to keep on remembering, say, right, I want to connect to Starbucks free Wi-Fi or Vodafone free Wi-Fi. Your phone goes, hey, I've seen that before. Let me connect to it. You know, she wants to connect to the Internet. Now, this is I'm still even more terrified. So what how likely is this to be happening to people you know so i've I've logged on to maybe i don't know 10 free different wi-fi's in the past couple of weeks uh, or someone who's sort of every day they're logging on somewhere how big a risk is it realistically it's very hard to put a number to it um two years ago we released a piece of research that we called snoopy where we looked at this risk itself you know how trusting are people and during our test cases the vast majority of people did connect to our rogue access points and browse the internet now we were doing nothing illegal but if we were doing it there's a very good chance that the criminals are doing it because it's actually quite easy to do and the benefits and the yield that you get from doing it are actually quite lucrative at the moment and, you know, is it just people say, oh, well, you, sh- you shouldn't obviously do your online banking if you're in a coffee shop. Um, I, how, how bad can something like checking Facebook be? Does that put me at as much risk as doing, say, my online banking? It does to a degree. If you, you know, Facebook is a good example. Um, people are inherently lazy when it comes to the Internet. So we'll reuse the same password because passwords are, are hard to remember. You know, James mentioned having a good password, but on a mobile device, a really long, strong password is actually very hard to type in. Yeah. So generally, they'll have one password and it could be the password for all your social media activities. So if I can get that information and sell it on or contact your friends and say, listen, I'm stuck somewhere. Can I have some money? Here's my bank account details. Perfect scam gets used a lot today. A lot of people fall for it. I've, I've definitely had a, a many of those emails. So basically, what what can people do? So you know, we do need access to the internet, whether that's through ridiculous roaming charges or through free Wi-Fi. How can I and all our listeners protect ourselves from these risks? So there's a couple of things. It's not all doom and gloom. Um, the first thing is stop being so trusting. 
just because a network says it's free, automatically think, why is it free? What is it doing with my data? And that's where the big money is being made today with your data. Secondly, if you are using something like online banking or other financial transactions, make use of a VPN. What's that then? So it's a virtual private network, and effectively what it does, it will encrypt your data from your phone through to a trusted server and then onto the internet. So it stops people eavesdropping on your communications. And how would I find one of those? Can you I can just Google, sign up for one? Yeah, Google, um, not free VPN. Um, I'd go for a paid VPN again. Why is it free? <laughs> what are they doing with that data? Oh, yeah. Um, but they, they, you know, they cost, on average, a couple of pounds a month. But if you are mobile and you do, do rely on your phone a lot... I'd honestly say get hold of a VPN. At SensePost, we only travel and use VPNs when it comes to our mobiles. So given that I obviously don't have a VPN and I've just spent the past two weeks connecting promiscuously to as many Wi-Fis as I can, uh, is there anything I could do to my phone to, to check that I'm OK or should, should I be changing all my passwords? I think it's a good idea to change your passwords on a frequent basis anyway. So now is probably a really good time. And it's not a case of panic, oh, no, somebody might have got my data. But well, they kind of have already then, haven't they, I guess? <laughs> then, then run to the hill screaming. <laughs> and, uh, and broadly, I mean, do you think it's really important that we do try and talk sensibly without panicking too much about these issues? Definitely. It's, it's not all doom and gloom. Um, you know, and the security industry does like to play down the stuff a lot. But I'd say, listen, it's common sense has to prevail here. So be safe and it's OK. Definitely. Thank you. That's Daniel Cuthbert from SensePost. We'll find out later on in the programme what constitutes a good password too. That's our question of the week coming up with Amelia Perry later in the programme. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and me, Katani. This week, if you hadn't gathered, we are actually talking about cyber security. And if you'd like to get in touch to tell us about your experiences or your advice, then you can drop us a line to chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. Now, do you use your mobile phone to browse the internet when you're abroad? If you do, you could be in danger of someone siphoning off your data. We'll hear how that works in a moment. But first, email. Now, if an email turns up from someone with a familiar name and there's a document attached to it that seems to be relevant to you, or you, say, work in recruitment and someone sends you a CV, you're really likely to open it. But these documents can be phony and they can be virus-laden. They contain a virus in disguise. And when you open them on your computer, they can deploy a malicious program called a payload that hijacks the machine. Greer Jackson has been at the 44Con conference where she met Vlad Ochinoklov, who looks at ways hackers entice us to open malicious documents. These days, what attackers are moving on to is client-side exploitation. Is when we deliver payload, not directly not attacking a machine directly from the internet, but we uh, deliver the payload which will infect the system through the email or other means. So I open up an email, and how might you be able to infect my computer with malware? Right, usually the scenarios are um, we profile our targets carefully, we construct an email within the context of interest or business of the person we're targeting. In, um, in lots of cases we use documents. It contains some smart code within it which will identify the system that it runs on, and then it will uh, execute the payloads and will provide us with reverse access to your system. This is the primary distribution vector for banking malware. So it's literally as simple as opening up a Word document? Yes, it is. From our experience, we were successful, 95% successful with that. So how do you convince people to open this document? Because we all know that you don't open emails from people you don't know, you don't trust, it might contain the software, people are aware of that. So how do you convince them, so to speak? It might be a financial organisation and it might be an email sent to you 
from a trusted address containing something that's tempting to open. It might be a um, payslip of one of the police within the organization. So there are different, many different social engineering tricks to um, make you want to execute the document and run it. So to engage someone to do it, you might say, my colleague XYZ salary or bonus for the month, that might be a good way to entice someone. I know I would be tempted to open up a document that said something like that. Yeah, there are many different ways and techniques we can um, apply in order to persuade the uh, potential victim to run it. And uh, most of those documents are cleaned up, so antivirus systems that you have installed will not catch them. So once you have access, once you've opened that document, what sort of information can you gain through that? Um, Everything. Everything that the user has access to, even more. Uh, In some cases, we have more access uh, and control over the, uh, the box than the user has. So full access um, to the user's workstations and the network environment around him. What sort of examples do you have that might demonstrate the power of something like this? Malicious guys, at least on the underground, primary target is, is milking, basically. So they'll be able to fish out credit card details from your computers. They'll be able to um, see their memory. It will um, uh, inject itself into the browser and will uh, compromise Everything you see on the screen for the browser, it will be able to um, capture any form submissions which you are sending out via HTTPS. It's called form grabbing. For example, you visit an HSBC web page, yeah? You know, everything looks legitimate, but before the browser renders up the HTML, you'll be able to inject some additional code into it, so whatever you see will be hijacked. It might be additional field added to it, asking for your date of birth or your credit card number due to security reasons or whatever. So um, everything can be done. Once you compromise the system, um, everything that on the system, as well as everything that sits behind it within network environment, is basically a open air. I've learned a little bit about some of the security issues about what happens when you're at home and in the workplace. But what about when you're on your holidays? Well, I've just stepped outside the conference with Stephen Coe and Rob Kiris from KPN to talk a little bit about what happens when you're roaming abroad on your mobile phone or tablet. Normally, when you're at home, you're browsing the web. That data goes straight to your network. But when you're travelling in another country, there's an additional network it has to go through, and that network is the GRX. Now, you've both been looking at the security of this additional network, GRX. But first, Stephen, what sort of data are we talking about here? GRX carries the roaming data part, so not the voice or your SMS text, but anything you do when you're browsing the internet, for example. So if you logged into your Yahoo Mail, Gmail, your Facebook, so all data related goes across that. What's your work revealed? We discovered actually that um, so much of the GRX network uh, equipment, so the servers and different systems, woefully out of date, misconfigured, missing patches, and so with easily available hacking tools, you could um, reach it and exploit those systems and then subsequently you could uh, capture this information. And what sort of information are we talking about? I know we say we've logged into Facebook, but you know, does it really matter that they've seen a few friends and I've written that I like that person's photo on Facebook? Well, there's more data carried across. It's not only your content, but also your credentials. So your username, your passwords, you could access all these kinds of information on this network. On top of that, the GTP, which is protocol information, has your location details. Uh, it also reveals what sort of equipment you're using. So if you're on an iPhone 5S or a Samsung S5, uh, that sort of information is available, which means that uh, you can have a really targeted uh, exploit against you if you were the person of interest. 
So it's not just generic sweeping data, it's actually data that's very, very personal to you. Surely that's illegal. Surely that shouldn't be allowed to happen. Well, that's very difficult to say because we don't actually know what kind of legislation or what kind of freedom these intelligence services have. But you can, if you want to, protect yourself by using a VPN solution. So there are quite a few numbers of applications which you can install on your phone which encrypt your information from your phone towards a server. So you have additional security measures there. It's more difficult for them to... Uh, extract information out of that traffic flow. That's the kind of protection you can take care of yourself. That's Greer Jackson speaking with Stephen Coe, Rob Kiris, and before them, Vlad of Chinnikov. I'm pretty terrified now. Uh, you're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. We've heard how consumer products can place you at risk over the internet, but what about life in the workplace? There's evidence that companies are crippling their competitors' websites to boost their own trade. How does it work? Well, imagine it's Valentine's Day. Wouldn't it be good and very profitable if you were the only company selling red roses? Well, technically, you can be. This sort of activity is called DDoS, or denial-of-service attacks. And Jonathan Bowers is the managing director of UK Fast e-web hosting company, and he says that although this sounds like something for a thriller, it's actually a lot more common than we think. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Chris. Tell us, first of all, what does a web hosting company like UK Fast actually do? Okay, well, as a web host, we, we build the data centers that house the, uh, the computers that power the internet. Uh, I suppose, in effect, we connect those computers with the world. So from that platform, we're connecting businesses with their customers, we're connecting soldiers with their families, paramedics with their training. So it, it's a very um, crucial and important job that the web host does to make sure that these organizations reach the rest of the world. And what is one of these denial-of-service attacks and what does it comprise? Well, effectively, uh, denial-of-service attack is a huge amount of resource hitting one website. So if you imagine that uh, you have an advert during uh, Coronation Street, for instance, and you have a million people who decide, I, I like the look of that, I'm going to go online and I'm going to try and buy it now, you might have a million people hitting that website at one moment. Now, there are very few websites that could cope with that amount of traffic. Uh, and uh, effectively, what a DDoS attack is, is a simulated version of that where uh, nefariously somebody is, uh, is attacking a website with so much information that they know the resource won't be able to cope and it will knock that website over. And when this happens, how much does it cost the industry? Well, I think uh, probably it's very difficult to say overall how much it costs the industry because I'd imagine there are a lot of businesses who don't like to ever admit to having been um, uh, impacted by a DDoS attack. Uh, but there are uh, a number of stats on how much it costs the industry um, and uh, it depends how big the business is and it depends exactly what they're doing online. So if you've got a very busy e-commerce website, let's imagine um, a website, uh, a retail website that might be expecting 80,000 visitors across their busiest day. Imagine if that website was down uh, for the whole of that day because its infrastructure had been taken offline. That would mean it loses out on all that opportunity and all that money. So you could be talking hundreds of thousands of pounds. For large businesses, the average breach could be worth somewhere between 450 and 850,000 pounds to that business. Now, UK Fast as a web hosting company hosts thousands of businesses' websites in your data centres. So have you got evidence that this is actually happening? Can you see evidence that people are taking down their competitors in this way? Uh, what we see um, tends to be circumstantial evidence. Um, 
when somebody performs a DDoS attack, um, they're actually using IP addresses that are very difficult to trace back to any particular place. These um, are like postcodes for where your computer is on the internet, isn't it? Absolutely. So every website has um, a, a numerical address as well, and that's its IP address. Um, and what DDoS attacks do is flood um, with lots and lots of traffic um, that IP address, that that um, that postcode, as it were, um, and. It's very difficult to trace that back because it's uh, there's a black market on the internet where people can buy um, DDoS attacks. Um, and uh, effectively what happens is you tend to find that if somebody is attacking a website at a particular time, it's because they have motive. And you can also find that there are, there are other ways that that person might have had a look at that website and, and effectively tried to hack into that web- website through other vulnerabilities. So uh, businesses like ours are being asked to look more and more into whether there are uh, what you'd call vulnerabilities in the website itself that are allowing these things to happen. And in reverse engineering those vulnerabilities, you're often able to see that somebody has actually been in, had a look, disappeared again. And in these cases, often they're not as clever as the DDoS attack itself, and it can trace it back. Um, If you can pass that information on to law enforcement, often they're able to then uh, look further into it and discover that actually the DDoS attack came from the same perpetrator. And where in the world are these attacks originating? Well, the attacks are originating um, in a number of key areas, um, the Asia-Pacific area quite often. In fact, in Q1, uh, the first quarter, that is, of this year, 2014, over 40% of all DDoS attacks were um, originating from China. That number has dropped significantly in the second um, part of the year. Uh, and in actual fact, uh, the USA is the, the place uh, with 20% of all originated DDoS attacks. However, it's a bit of a misnomer to believe that just because the DDoS attack originated there, it means the perpetrator who actually uh, paid for it to happen um, originated there as well, because they could be anywhere in the world and they could have bought that uh, from that particular country. So looking at how it would work, if I wanted to push my business online and nobble my competition, traditionally I would have a marketing budget and I'd spend some money printing some leaflets and posters and a radio or TV campaign or something. What I could do now is to spend some money paying someone nefariously overseas to basically cripple my competitors' websites with one of these DDoS attacks. Yes, uh, DDoS attacks um, directed at one particular website. So you might end up uh, spending quite a bit of money if you if you were to try and knock out everybody else that sells roses on Valentine's Day, for instance. Uh, but but uh, I suppose the big uh, opportunity for people could be where they rank very highly in Google, but their main competitor ranks perhaps just above them or just below them on that search engine. In actual fact, if uh, if somebody's searching at the time that a DDoS attack is uh, is hitting the number one um, uh, term in that search list, then people move to the number two term. And if that's your competitor, then they might get lucky. And what can we do to defend ourselves? Or what can companies like you do to protect the people whose websites you host? Well, I suppose the first thing is intrusion um, detection and intrusion prevention. And uh, it's important to point out that um, every website and every, just like at home where you'd have an antivirus on your computer, your website should be protected in your hosting by firewalls and by uh, routers and switches that have the ability to spot traffic that is uh, slightly out of the norm, for instance, across the network. And and if you can find that traffic uh, that doesn't seem quite right, perhaps sending millions and millions of visitors at one time, um, then often that means that it's out of character for the website and the, these uh, intrusion detection and prevention systems are able to step in and actually reroute that or alert somebody to it so that they can actually stop this from happening. 
Jonathan, thank you very much. That's Jonathan Bowers. He is the Managing Director of UK web host UK Fast. And in the interest of transparency, we should also say that UK Fast does also host the Naked Scientist website. And finally, to finish us off, Amelia Perry hacks her brain in search of the answer to this question of the week. We've been tapping away in order to find the answer to this week's question. Hi, I'm Anthony from London. What makes a good password that is hard to hack? With the amount of personal information people put online, keeping our data protected is clearly important. But some of the most common passwords used by people include let me in, 12345, and the very original password, which surely are not very secure. So what is the best way to ensure our security online, whether it's for our Facebook or Twitter account, or something more important, such as internet banking? We went to Laurie Faith Cranor, a security researcher at Carnegie Mellon University, Pennsylvania, about her suggestions for a super safe password. A good password is one that is difficult for other people to guess, but easy for you to remember. It should be tough both for people you know, as well as for malicious attackers who might make billions of guesses to figure out your password. So we have to consider attacks from people who know us, as well as malicious hack attempts which can spew out billions of guesses. So what kind of password simply can't hack it? To create a good password, pick a word or phrase that you can remember. But don't use the lyrics from songs or anything else that's popular. And don't use the name of your pet, your phone number, or other information people might know about you. I better start changing my passwords then. So what's an example of a really tough password to crack? You might use the first letter of each word in a phrase that you make up. Then add some extra symbols and numbers or capital letters in the middle. Don't just put them at the beginning or end. And don't substitute numbers that look like letters. It's good to have at least 12 characters in total. Wow, that's a lot to remember. So can we save time by making one super password and then use it for every account? You should use different passwords for every account. So some people find it useful to have one secure password that they add a few extra letters to each time. This can help you manage a large number of accounts, but isn't a good idea for your most important accounts. It is much better to write your passwords down in a secure place than to use the same password for multiple accounts. Password managers are also a good way to keep track of your passwords securely so you don't have to remember them all. So, it would seem a combination of numbers, symbols and lowercase and uppercase letters will hopefully guarantee your accounts are for your eyes only. Thanks, Laurie. Next week, we are trying to solve the answer to this question from Nikki in South Africa, who wanted a couple of tips for her school project. How is self-cleaning glass made? Windows that won't need to be cleaned again, computer screens free of dirt and grime, and no more grubby fingerprints on your smartphone. But how on earth is this possible? What do you think? So if you can help Amelia scrub up on how self-cleaning glass works, or if you've got ideas or feedback for the show, you can find us on Facebook, get in touch with us via Twitter, we're at Naked Scientists. You can join the debate on our forum, thenakedscientist.com slash forum, or just write to us, chris at thenakedscientist.com. That's it for this week. Thank you very much to Katani for joining me and to Hannah Critchlow for additional production. Join us next week when we'll explore the incredible world of 3D printing. Will the 3D printer be in everyone's home within a decade? We'll also meet the team who say they can print fruit. Thank you very much for listening. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and the STFC. My name's Chris Smith. Goodbye.
thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.